Let's start. Any, um, it, I think today is going to be a surprising class. Um, at least it was for me when I was thinking about it in a, in a way that jumped on me, surprised me. And I think you'll see why. The, the accidental timing of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice is really put into perspective other things. And I'm, I'm so glad for it. And I think you'll see why in a minute. Um, but let's start. Um, I think you're going to be surprised. I think it's a, I'm saying this with no sense of exaggeration. I think this is a watershed moment. And I'll try to make clear why that's so. It's so, such an important class. Yeah, it is. I'm just away from it. Do you want this here? Is it safe? Or do you want it on the Here. Table? Just both here. Thanks. <coughs> do you want to take that sheet? Thanks. 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 Doc, before you go, sorry, can you get that? Worse and worse. Worse and worse. Any, let's start. Any, let's start. Any prayers for tonight? Mary, bless your soul. We, we already know the answer to that question. <laughs> well, my son David, we've all prayed for him many times here. Uh, my daughter who lives with me was the adult in this case, and she called the sheriff. We had him committed to a psychiatric hospital. Oh so it's been, it, it, it happened last week, and so it's been really rough. Yeah. I'm sorry, Mary. Um, <laughs> just so you know, you're not alone. When Suzanne was working as the secretary at UD in the history philosophy department for a number of years, we had technical problems when we were living in Irving. And she asked somebody if anybody knew somebody who could help. And the, the guy who was her helper doing running stuff suggested a guy named um, Mike Grosso, who is the one who put together the online program and who made it possible to put all the files and everything like that on it. Um, he's a young guy. I, I, I look at him as a son, and I think he looks at me as something of a father. We've had a close relationship. They, uh, he married a young woman, just funny, he, he, very alone, very Catholic, you know, he belonged to the, that sort of community off at UD that people looked at as being homeschooled and pietistic and um, wonderful man, so conscientious and so intelligent. The number of talks we've had over the 10 years, 12, 15, whatever it's been, before he got married, and he was shy, and, and we would talk about his dating experiences, and he always put the fault on him, you know, that women didn't like him, or girls didn't, there was something wrong with him. He finally met a girl, and it's just helped complete his life. But he came from a good family, they had five kids, and one of his siblings has been committed, I think for the second time. A couple of years ago, he 
just lost it, um, was on the streets of New York alone and got things together and was released and just a couple of weeks ago Mike told us that um, he was um, found on the streets again. I don't want to go into the details because it's, it's, it gets too personal but um, I mean one of the things that I'm going to underscore tonight in our talk, my talk, my, the words that I have to offer you guys is we live in a world that has just lost it and Catholics are so isolated, so alone we, we represent a what's the the remnant you know in the Old Testament that small group of so anyway I'm sorry I'm sorry and we will keep it deeply in our prayers his name is David, David yeah any other requests tonight marriages and families have such mountains of weight to carry. It just Some of the things I'm going to say tonight should underscore that, but let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, um, for the gift of yourself in the Mass yesterday and today for anybody who went. The readings are borderline darkness. Um, in the Old Testament reading it was a story of um, David um, going to war with Saul and I think this morning um, hearing the news heartbreaking, heartbreaking, that Absalom, his son, was dead. And if you know anything about those stories you know that, that um, David had his affair with Bathsheba, God's words about him were a man after my own heart. Some people can, I cannot fathom, you know, how, how God could love him. Just, if anything, it's more of a comment on us that God can love somebody after sinning like that is a pretty clear indication of how much God loves us. Anyway, he committed the sin and, and David knew that he would suffer consequences for it. So as much as he was God's beloved, and I think we're meant to take that serious, he was a man after God's own heart. He was in sin. He committed to sin. His struggles with Saul are unforgettable. They went to war. David did everything he could to protect Saul as a king, even when it meant um, sacrificing himself or putting himself in a, at a risk. And um, this morning we learned that Absalom who had not made David's life easy, he's his son, died. And David's words were, um, how do you put it, that I wish I'd died before him and, yeah, um, and in an earlier reading when he was struggling with Saul, his words were something to the effect that he hoped God could find his way to, um, not hold things against him. So the, this, the singer of how many psalms, I don't know that we know, but we know that um, many of the psalms are, we believe that um, were composed by David. That penitential psalm always begins Lent. It's David. It's, um, it's a, a king um, on his knees um, begging pardon from his God from, for his sins and 
asking for his forgiveness. It's a penitential song and it leads us into Lent. So we're approaching Lent. The, there's a strange kind of borderland, borderline darkness of the Jews failing God, returning, David's struggles. I think in the gospel reading it was Christ expelling the demons and strange um, readings because the demons know it's Christ when they say, what do I have to do? What do you have to do with us? Or, you know, don't torment us, God. <laughs> don't torment us. They saw it coming. Anyway, you know they get thrown into the sheeps and the sheep go off the hill. and Or goats or swine. pigs, sorry, swine. Thanks. Um, so we're watching Christ um, exercise an authority no human being could have. How, how people could read that and not see God in him is amaz always amazed me, but he had enough authority that the demons recognized him when other people didn't. They didn't know who Christ was. The demons couldn't mistake him. They knew because they were spiritual beings. Anyway, the, that his love was great enough to cast out demons. So um, we're in good hands with Christ, with God, um, whatever's going on, and um, we pray for those, particularly those we love who are struggling. So I ask a special grace for David um, and his struggles. Let the help that he's being given be sound. Um, let it be sound. It's a tough position to be in. And I ask for a special grace um, for our beloved Mary. The burdens that she carries. Connie um, isn't going to be here tonight. And I, I put her in my prayers. Um, she's fine, but she so often <laughs> is carrying burdens. I, I don't think in the four and a half years that we've been meeting that a day has passed when she hasn't asked her prayers <laughs> almost weekly. So... Um, for whatever burden she's carrying tonight and those within us. Um, and I ask for a special um, grace for Mike's brother. So let us be glad and grateful um, for our God. Did you ask prayers for Alexi? Oh, um, Lexi's not here. She's got COVID. Anne's away. She's um, traveling. Be with her, um, God. Um, it's good to see um, Mary Jo back. She had some ailment last week, and something's been going around. So I hope all of you are keeping healthy, and we also offer thanksgiving for Isaiah. What? Elijah. Elijah. James. Elijah James. EJ. <laughs> um, surround him with your protection. Let him keep his health as he as he goes through these early stages in his birth and I ask a blessing for his parents and especially for his grandparents <laughs> um, for the half dozen times every day they are making calls and anyway um, pardon our sins Christ pardon our sins please one of the themes tonight will be the, the grotesque um, archetypes in women I mean, we're going to see women who are nowhere close to
to being flatterable. I mean, they're just awful creatures. Um, I ask a special courage for the women tonight. Um, it makes me aware myself of how large my own sins are in all of us. But to put this in perspective, we, we live in a respectable world, and it, it's a world that um, helps us to to not see sometimes the full force of our sins. If we had any question about it, all we have to do is look at the crucifixion. If a punishment had to be that, that great, how great were the sins that had to be overcome? So, in a um, urge for everybody to have the courage to look at all of us, the depth and extent of our sins, that ask that kind of death of our God. If we minimize our sins, we shouldn't if we look at you. So, for the great love that you offer us in the face of our sins, um, I offer a heartfelt, deep um, thank you. Um, be with us tonight in the work that we do. As always, help us to live it, to bring it to the world, um, to make our faith stronger and our abilities to defend our faith, um, particularly when it's hard. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, God, I just did it again. Sorry, Doc. Can I have um, Can I have the the Psalms? <clears throat> um, oh, here. Thanks. I got it, Doc. Thank you, Mike. Um, we're we're about to take a turn tonight. Tonight's going to represent a serious turn, and I hope I can do justice to it tonight. Um, we read some poems of Dunn on the on the turn that we're about to make. I thought it would be appropriate to read um, a, a psalm and some of the lines and comment on them. You should already have this in your packet because you, you've all had this packet for years now. But I didn't ask you to bring it, so I had them printed off. So if you don't have the Psalms. I'm get a, go ahead and get a packet. I'm going to read the first one. <clears throat> it's just a reminder that how important God was in the Old Testament. If if you've read the Old Testament, you know there's a strange way in which God is everywhere. He's everything. Um, he's there when His people are good. He's there when they're bad. He's there in the midst of stories like a Jacob story when a man is doing things that lots of us would disapprove of today. He's so cunning. You know, he manipulates, he's a clever man. Um, lots goes on in the Old Testament, but God's always, the Father, is always at the center of it. You, you can draw a parallel with the New Testament because Christ is always there. But in the Old Testament, it's, it's the Father. And this is a psalm that makes that clear, <clears throat> like so many things in the Old Testament do. Psalm 127. Except the Lord build the house... They labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. He does everything for us. Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak 
with the enemies in the gate. I want to read a couple of lines from um, a couple of other psalms just to make a point. To see the food. Help yourself to see the food is really good. And we've got more wine tonight because Mary Jo showed up. I have nothing but thanksgiving for her. Um, Psalm 19 on page 4. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament proclaims the works of his hand. Day unto day pours forth speech. Time speaks. There's nothing that wasn't created by God, so everything is a reflection of the word. Everything in nature speaks. Stones, we've gone through this before. You know, in all the reading, we've learned to see that in good poets, everything speaks. Um, remember in Supernatural Love, the sewing, the sewing needle speaks, the thread speaks, the sampler that she's um, sewing speaks. With good poets, we find that things, be, they're aware that things are alive and have personhood. They're not dull, inert things, the way they've become under the science. Day unto day pours forth speech, night unto night whispers knowledge. There is no speech, no words, their voice is not heard, a report goes forth through all the earth, their messages to the ends of the world. He has pitched them in a tent for the sun, it goes forth like a bridegroom. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Oh, I didn't get it on this page. Um, God bless. Oh, my fault. How did this not? I um I I I don't know how I don't know what happened. I quoted from the lines where it says, "Awake, my soul, awake, a liar," and it treats the soul as an instrument. So he's um, he's saying, "Awake, my soul, speak, sing, the glory of you know." So he treats the soul as a musical instrument, as a lyre, from, for, from which swings forth this music. So I wanted to use it again, but somehow I, I missed something here. But it was just another psalm that, that made clear that everything in God's order is musical. That it's, it has a beauty. And, the poets have been helping us to see and feel that beauty, so it's just not an abstraction in our in our heads. Okay, um, a couple of things just by way of business. Um, you know, I've already said this is going to be. We're on the home stretch. This is going to be it for me. This is our last season together. Um, I'm half grieving that, but. It, um, I'm really losing it, and I don't want to flick my age on you more than I already am. So, um, this is it. Um, after the short stories, we're going to do a number of works that are going to deal more directly, more explicitly with sacramental issues than any any works we've done. And that's interesting because we're going into the modern world, which is a secular, non-sacramental world. It's a secular world. 
But the stories that we're going to read are going to go more directly, speak more directly to our faith than I th almost anything. And I think I'm probably exaggerating, but it's a way to drive home a point. We're going to do um, Two We Have Faces, C.S. Lewis's Two We Have Faces, which I think is his finest work by far. I, the the, the uh, Narnia stuff d doesn't come close. Two We Have Faces to me is, and it's, it's very short, it's very readable. It's C.S. Lewis's redoing of the psyche myth. It'll blow you away. I'm surprised at the response from the classes that I've taught, because I think we do great works and then we come across C.S. Lewis and everybody goes, good. It's the greatest work I've read so far. <laughs> um, so C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faith, it's very mythic, very modern. You'll see when you read it. It's, it's so readable, it's easy to read. It's a great story. Till We Have Faces is about a conversion of the soul. The Violent Beard Away, Fanny O'Connor's greatest novel, is about baptism. Um, a young kid is going to have to deal with a modern, educated teacher who's been formed in all the philosophies that Pope John identified and that Chesterton took on in Orthodoxy. All of them. We're watching a, a modern framed, formed on those philosophies. And this young kid who was raised by a prophet figure whom he hates. The young kid is full of rebellion. He has nothing good to say about his grandfather. He's, he thinks his grandfather is a religious freak. So he's doing everything he can to rebel against his grandfather. Hates him. And I don't want to give away the story, you know, but it's about baptism. Um, and it's, it's, the context is the modern, rationalistic, secular world with all of its intellectual aspects um, is the sort of enveloping action of the story and at the center is this young kid in revolt against Christianity. So she's going right to the heart of a modern problem. Murder in the Cathedral, T.S. Eliot's treatment of um, Thomas Beckett, martyrdom. So conversion, baptism, martyrdom, um, um, go down Moses will be Faulkner's treatment of the, um, um, oh God, the chosen, the, the outcast one was Ishmael, remember? Isaac. The chosen one is Isaac. Faulkner look at Melville's, Melville's um, Moby Dick saying he wished he'd written that book because he loved it so much. His answer to that, and <laughs> literature professors, professors have no clue about this. Mel, uh, Melville's Moby Dick is treatment of mid-19th century crisis in Christianity. Ishmael is the response that we've read, we've read it together so you know. He's the outcast one. He has no place. This Christian world is failing it's hypocritical. All of its hypocrisies are being laid bare. Faulkner loved it. In his time, 100 years later, he writes a story. It's a collection of short stories, actually, that formed a longer story. He didn't see it coming. He wrote these stories, but gradually reached a point where he saw they were all dealing with the same thing. So he took these short stories and put them in the narrative form that they should be in, and it's called Go Down Moses. It's about the Isaac. Um, the, um, the chosen one. So with Melville, we've got the outcast. With Faulkner, we've got the chosen. So a call. What happens to that call is going to be amazing. Young Ike, when he grows up and comes into his inheritance, does something that shocks everybody. I'm not going to give it away. You've got to read it. You have to read it. 
um, he, he comes into an, his inheritance. And remember in the South, the inheritance is land. And it's um, fouled, corrupted, because um, the great sin of the South was slavery. So all of the men who um, managed to raise themselves to an elevated status did so on the back of slaves. We fought the Civil War. That story, Go Down Moses, picks up um, with the Civil War era and comes forward into modern time. So Faulkner is going to deal with a calling. Okay? And I've yet to decide whether I want to do or have anything left to do Faulkner's great trilogy, the Snopes trilogy, but that's later. But those works, what did I name, four or five, all deal directly with sacramental issues in the modern world. So we're understanding exactly what it is, the sufferings, the suffering, the burdens that we bear that are different. And if, if that wasn't enough to enter a period which goes beyond what Faulkner was dealing with, we've got trans, same-sex marriages, so. Um, but, the, but this is an introduction into the modern world. Not particularly from a Catholic point of view, but it's certainly dealing with um, religious themes, sacramental themes, okay? That's what we'll do, and we'll close. That will be the end of our work together. And you know that I, I've said that during that period, I'm going to go back, probably starting next week. Um, that's why I'm reading the Psalms tonight. And we'll do the Windhover, Hopkins the Windhover, um, Auden's um, Horae Canonicae, the... Um, the Canonical Hours, it's a stunning poem, long and hard. And we will end with T.S. Eliot's The Four Quartets. And it's going to be a strange ending because I'm not going to go into detail. They're just too, too difficult, The Four Quartets. But they're beautiful to hear, they are profound, and I would like you to have some glimpse of them before we put, together, put to rest the work we're doing together. So that's what's ahead of us, okay? Any questions about where we're going? And the movie. Say. And the movie. I don't know. I'm still struggling with a movie. I don't know what to do. Um, I thought about Life of Pi, because. Um, but how many of you have seen Life of Pi? Um, I shouldn't ask this question. Any interest in doing it here and having a? Sure, we've got to have a meal, but all I know is we've got to have a meal. It may be better not to have a movie and just have a meal and talk, I don't know. But, <laughs> but I don't want to end on a low note. If we're going to watch a movie, it's got to be a really good movie, and I'm drawing a blank on that one. <clears throat> Suzanne's going to hit me up. She's already what about, shaking. What about Oppenheimer? Which? Oppenheimer. Haven't seen it. Is it good? I thought it was great. Yeah? It's I'll look at it. Yeah. It's about World War II. Yeah. Yeah. The mischievous side of me, I'm going to let this out because some of you are going to be, if you watch this movie, you'll be horrified. I don't think Bob will because, did you, did you watch it? Man from Nowhere? Yeah. Oh, did you? Did you like it? Yeah. Did you? This is a movie with a lot of violence. I love it. <laughs> I think it's an extraordinary movie, but it's, it's a very, very, I don't, so I'm half teasing with that. Suzanne has nothing good to me to say on that one. Um, 
Anyway, I'm thinking about a movie. I don't know what we'll do. We have to have a dinner to bring this to a close. And um, so that's looking ahead, okay? Quickly, I gave you a sheet with narrative points of view. And it probably won't mean much to you now, but I hope it does after we do Why I Live at the Post Office. Just take a look at basic points of view. You should have a packet with a more complicated presentation. I just chose this to give you a brief sketch of what's going on. If you look at the sketch, you can see various ways of presenting reality. So um, the first person is, we've got a narrator. It's, see the circle? So the R represents reader. So A is narrating his story. It can be Huck Finn, right? Huck Finn's a character in the story. He's telling his own story. Pip in Charles Dickens' Great Expectations. Omniscient means the narrator is outside of the story and he can see everything, right? He tells the story from the outside and he can see everything and he can see into the hearts of people. So everybody following so far? Concealed is a narrator who tends to be in and out of characters, so it's not quite omniscient, and it's a little bit more complex than first person, but it allows us to go in and out of characters at will. Um, and central intelligence is somebody in the story is telling it, and that person is different from other people by having an unusual sensitivity and intelligence. The first person that comes to my mind is um, Marlowe in Conrad's stories. If you've read any of Joseph Conrad, you know that Marlowe tells the story. And he has a Lord Jim, the movie, is the, um, based on the book. Marlowe is an unusually sensitive guy and tends to see more than other people. So the story is told from his point of view. Um, and remember, lyric, which doesn't belong here, is from the interior. But nobody's telling a story. I want everybody to hold on to this. It's so important. Nobody's telling a story. We're not in a narrative mode. We're in a lyric mode. We're in, we've entered into the interior of somebody, and we're getting the interior of that person's life from that person's point of view. Is that clear? So it's like a voice from within. One of the interesting things, if, if you recall the work that we did on Austin, is she so often enters into the interior, and we get the interior, of, particularly of Elizabeth. So there's like an adaptation of a lyric mode. It's what gives such great sensibility and sensitivity to Austin's stories. But keep that in mind, because I'm going to ask you a question about point of view when we get to the stories. But here, let me offer, let's get to, um, I, I want to do a very quick review of Jane Austen and then get to uh, our two stories tonight. Last week, I made some claims. I want to reinforce them tonight. And I want to ask a question that I never got back to last week. I've got two questions um, to ask. Um, One of them is, um, could Pride and Prejudice, that story, have been told by a man? And we didn't answer it. 
And the other question I have, and I want to get to that first, but I want to, I want to lead up to it. The other question, but I want everybody to hold on to this for a minute. Um, you know from Pride and Prejudice, I think, we, I think we did a really good reading of it. You know from Pride and Prejudice that the first third, first half of the story is given to us largely through Elizabeth's point of view, and it's a limited first person. So we tend to get only as much as she sees. So we make judgments with her, we're with her, we're critical of Darcy, we're criti critical of all the other families because we see things critically through her eyes and her judgments. And we trust them because she's so bright. She's so bright. And Austin knows exactly what she's doing. She draws us into that world completely so that we're as blind as Elizabeth without knowing it, like Elizabeth. When Darcy proposes to her and she refuses and Darcy gives her the letter the next day, she says, how, how foolish I've been, I who've prided myself on my judgments all my life, that I never knew myself. So it's a strict a judgment a, a, a woman, a character can make um, given her intelligence or brightness, but it turns, okay? Now, here's my question, and give me a minute because I'm going to lead up to it. Um, <clears throat> so the first question is, could, could a man have written that story, that novel? And the other is, how do we look at Elizabeth in the second half of the novel? And this is, for me, a more serious one, and it relates to the first one. Elizabeth is bright, witty, charming, brave, independent, you know, she does things that other women don't do. She's not, I mean, she's not arrogant in any obvious way. I mean, she's prideful, but she has enough character that she doesn't, she doesn't show her pride. She's a, a really wonderful character. But in that moment, a change takes place. So we watch a woman who is bright, witty, independent. I don't remember what the other word was, but um, perceptive. You know, all those qualities. What happens to her at the end? Okay? And I want to... I want to come back to that in a minute, but let me lead up to it, going back to some of my general comments on Austin when I gave an overview of the book. I've claimed, I think rightly, that one of Jane Austen's um, values, the importance that she has that most critics don't recognize, is that she, in a way, is the last voice looking back to the nobility of the Catholic Middle Ages. She looks back to Shakespeare, and Shakespeare looks back to all of Shakespeare's comedies deal with marriages. And every one of the heroines in his comedies is a noble, a virtuous woman. In fact, we don't even see the, the, the sort of laughable women that Jane Austen shows us in Pride and Prejudice because some, some of them are ridiculous. Shakespeare has a... Remember, and I've said this to you God, years ago, is, is the modern view high or low? Is the ancient view high or low? We've gone through this. The ancient view had a high view of man, man descended from the gods, even in the pagan world before we get to Christianity, Right? Achilles, Odysseus, both trace their lineage back to the gods. They all have something divine in them. So in the, in the ancient world, we're constantly shown noble, even if tragic, noble figures. They don't concentrate on laughable figures. You have to go to Aristophanes to get a laughable, a comic view of things. 
So the ancient view was high. The view of man was high. The modern view is low. We've gone over this. Because our, we are descended, according to sciences, from apes. Or from forces which we don't understand. Evolutionary forces which are blind forces. So the modern view of man is low. Okay? It's rare to see nobility. Now hold on to that just for a second. Last time in my opening statements, I called to mind statements by John Paul and um, von Balthasar, um, both of whom gave us um, a really noble picture of women, okay? Because the, the, the model for them was Mary. Because Mary is the disciple of disciples, the noblest of all humans. She's superior to Achilles, to King David, because she was the mother of God. So she gives us a view of womanhood that enters into consciousness in Christianity that we didn't have in the ancient world, even in the Old Testament. So the view of woman radically changes, and we get Chaucer, and we've gone through this. You guys, you guys are in a rare position. We did Chaucer. Remember the, 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 author, or the stories that you told in which women were the central figures? And I, I remember laughing at it then because we'd, we were reading Shakespeare about that time, and I said, men are scoundrels. Set them next to you and look at all the, the Shakespeare's, I, by the way, I don't believe that. Every one of Shakespeare's tragic heroes is a noble man or it wouldn't be tragic. There's a nobility to the men. But Shakespeare's heroines are noble. All of Chaucer's women, for the most part, except Wife of Bath and the feminist lover. Wife of Bath is a, is a witch, she's a shrew. All the other women are extraordinary women, particularly in their resemblance to Mary. What makes Mary stand out is her yes. She didn't say um, um, to a husband, um, I'm going to do as you ask when it suits me or when it fits my conditions. She said yes going into it without knowing. So her, her yes was unconditional. She left herself open for whatever would happen. So, and her yes prefigured Christ's. When he finally came to his point and he had to say yes to his father, to complete his mission to go through his life. So something enters the world through Christianity that never existed in that form before, in men and in women, okay? Remember that um, John Paul said that he came to a point late in his life where he realized suddenly the, what he called the glory of woman, that there was a special glory he hadn't seen in his life before, and he praised it. And von Balthasar made that statement about the church saying that all of the bureaucratic things were, um, were manifestations of the maleness. And the church had become all male, that is, homosexual, one sex. That the feminine aspect had been um, buried. Um, so he said all the councils, the meetings, the, the administrative stuff, the online stuff, were all expressions of a conceptual mode associated with maleness. And he set off in contrast to that, the liturgy particularly, but all that was feminine or intuitive or mystical, because it wasn't run by concepts. Men tend to live in structures of their mind, women tend to live intuitively in their emotions. I mean, it's one of the, and both of those can be dark curses. I mean, the problem for both a man and a woman is to 
curb those things and unite in a marriage. I mean, it's one of the things that hopefully marriage can do for us. Um, and my, um, my contention then was that the, the woman who did the uh, introduction to Pride and Prejudice was misreading Pride and Prejudice. She was looking at Elizabeth as um, a prototype of the feminist, an early prototype. And I couldn't disagree more. So um, to go back to um, that question with those in mind, and I'm still not done with, with, <laughs> with my opening thoughts here, so hold on, be patient. Could that work, Pride and Prejudice, have been written by a woman? And what happens, how do we look at Elizabeth as a heroine? She is um, fully present, she's witty, she doesn't hold back, she, she walks in the rain to visit Jane, to everybody's objection, she's so independent, she does things that startle Carolyn Bingley, and very independent. How do we look at her at the end of the book? Is she the same woman after that revelation? Okay, now hold on, hold on to that just for one more minute. Stepping back for a moment and looking ahead to where we're going tonight, we're going to read um, Eudora Welty's um, Why I Live at the Post Office and Petrified Men. The reason I chose those is they're short. They're the most anthologized of Eudora Welty's stories. They're the most popular, and because they're short. But I've got to say this on her behalf, um, because th those, those two stories can trouble some people. She wrote um, a, a stories like A Worn Path, which is a tender. There's nothing parodic, parodied. It's, it's a tender story. Her story, um, The Bridegroom's Robber, I think, or and The Optimist's Daughter are short novels, very tender, very personal. So those of you who asked about reading, those are two of her greatest novels, they're short novels. Um, they won her the Pulitzer Prize. She's one of those extraordinary novel or writers in the 20th century. She's included with Flannery O'Connor and Catherine Ann Porter. I remember the teacher who, who well, I did an independent studies course for him, and I'd never heard of these writers before. But he called those three, those three women writers the three sister superior. Two of them are Catholic. I don't think, I don't think wealthy. I don't, I don't know that she identified, but Flannery O'Connor and, uh, and Catherine and Porter were Catholic. So he called them the three sister superior because they, they just stood head and shoulders above all the other female writers, certainly. I mean, Hemingway was important, and so was Faulkner, but these are the three major women writers of the 20th century, so we're getting, we're getting the best of the best at that time. Now, here's the state, so I said, those, those five novels of Jane Austen represent a watershed. We cannot find a writer, a woman writer or a man, but let it be in a woman. We will not find a woman writer taking love as the highest virtue man is capable of, because that's our inheritance from Christianity, that the greatest virtue is love. We cannot find another writer who takes love as the highest virtue and sees its completeness in marriage. What we see most of the time in the modern world is romantic marriages that you know, are comic or, or divorces. 
But we do not see anything like that. And I want to underscore that, not to make anybody feel bad, it's a way of pointing out a fact that both of them, she and Shakespeare, look back to a Catholic world. We've entered a modern world, and it's utterly changed the way we look at ourselves. Now, let me just offer two um, what's to the why there. Why the change? What happened? Darwin says, we're a product of evolutionary forces over which we have no control. We don't understand them. And Freud says, we're all products of perversities. The Protestant worldview says, we're all depraved. We saw that un unmasked in Melville. The dominant worldviews of the modern world are all dark. Where does love fit into that? Find it in Darwin or Freud. Yeah? So the world has changed, ut utterly, radically changed. So for any of us to carry a Catholic heritage forward like it's settled is plain. Because we're living in a world utterly different from anything we inherited from the past. It's radically different. So what happened? The modern philosophies changed everything. Now here's my claim. We're going to look at two stories today, and my claim is nothing, nothing like these stories could have been written in 1850. And that's when Jane Austen published her last work. So in the late 18th century, early 19th century, her works were published. 1815, let's say 1800, okay? What I'm saying is the works that we're reading tonight could never, never have been written. They are utterly products of a modern worldview. Jane Austen's writing about her community. Eudora Welty, Flannery O'Connor, um, Catherine Ann Porter are all writing about theirs. We've entered a very, very different world. And it's important to acknowledge that. Okay, so just keep that in mind. Um, why I live at the post office? Petrified Man could never have been written. The South, ironically, the South was a mannered society. It was modeled on England, mannered, aristocratic. But it was also based on slavery. And we had the Civil War and lost. And, and all modern artists coming from the South will acknowledge, confess, that was the turning point in the history and it, and it produced the greatest batch of writers ever in the South. Because they became self-conscious of themselves in a way Northern writers did not. That's what produced the depth of that writing. Because they were conscious of sins when the North thought they were saved. And they were without sin. So that am amazing production of artistic works was one of the fruits of the defeat of the Civil War. And also, right, a sort of negativism, a sort of a feeling of embarrassment and shame associated with that, having lost that and been on the wrong side of that conflict. Yeah, it's interesting because um, Faulkner makes a lot of that in The Sound of the Fury and the family there. So it's in the novels, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to maintain that it's there in the writers, but it never buries them. They are, it makes them better writers, more faithful, more truthful, in some ways I would say more noble. You know, if you compare Faulkner's works to Hemingway, who's a northerner, I mean the richness is almost no comparison, you know, or the, or the depth of, 
understanding or even the place of God in, you know, where it's not explicit, rarely explicit in Faulkner. And Faulkner is the one who says of Hemingway when he writes Old Man of the Sea, Hemingway finally discovered God. That there's just a depth that comes with an awareness of sin. Catholics should know that. <laughs> Because <laughs> whenever you see movies and there's a Catholic in it, he'll always say, I'm Catholic, I, was, I have all sorts of different kinds of guilt. <laughs> As if that's the defining virtue of Catholics. Okay, go back to my question. My two, I'd like to hear, just, this is by way of completing our review on Jane Austen. Could a man have written Pride and Prejudice? Let's take this up. I've got those two questions. Could a man have written Pride and Prejudice or not? It's unknowable, ultimately. It could have been an extraordinary man. I think of one of Hemingway's short stories. It was basically a story of date rape. And told a story of date rape? And told from the perspective of a woman. And a, a woman a literary critic was just astonished that he would have that different feeling and understand how a woman would feel. So I'm yeah. it sure seems difficult to imagine. Well, even take that difference because we enter into interiors with a fineness, her ability to, to give such exquisitely refined details is, it seems to me, way beyond Hemingway and what he can I mean. He can, you know, the tip of the iceberg theory that explains him that he always just shows you that tip and she doesn't leave you with a tip. She, she risks depths and make them clear so we actually feel in fine detail what a person's, her ability to discern or distinguish one sentiment from another just astounds me. Could a man have written that story or that novel? Where are you guys? Come on. No. Well, go ahead, Mike. No. I'm glad somebody's got some courage here and it takes a man. Well, <laughs> Come on, let's see. Now ask me why. No. no. <laughs> I'm, uh, Elizabeth writes from the point of view of someone who... She's not writing. Well, okay. We've got a narrator, and Elizabeth, this is, I want to keep that really clear here. But it is, it is uh, first... Uh, Limited first person, first yes, middle. yes, yes. Okay, so Lim Elizabeth's perspective, or... Uh, it is, or Austin's perspective, is, is of a woman's... Uh, Search for marriage and uh, how what their, what their place is in that in that society and and how crucial it was for a woman to find a suitable husband and I don't and in, in, you know there were some faults in how that pursuit happened in in all of the bad examples that we see of yeah. marriage but. I don't think a man could have appreciated that uh, position of needing to find, you know, a woman's need to find a mate to, to build a family. Anybody else? Melody, you have a thought on this? Sure. Uh, I, I thought you would. <laughs> of Darcy as being limited because I mean she, the way that she wrote him he sounds like first he was this, a, a, a cad a horrible person and next he was this wonderful savior <laughs> and there was, he really 
Interesting. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. And I'm going to read a couple of passages here to, to go directly to that. Anybody else's thought on this before? Holly, come on, you got a thought? Could a man have written this? You, come on. <laughs> don't, come on. What's your thought? What's your response? Oh, I don't, I don't think so. Why? Ignore your husband. He's trying to distract you. discussion down in this, but I couldn't agree more. The amazing thing for me is that she had that emotional sensitivity and instead of blowing it up, she could put words to it. The, the skill or the self-control and the percep perceptiveness to give words to that sensitivity, extraordinary, just extraordinary. Read more Jane Austen. Yeah, I don't think this is about the plight of women. That's a, that's a, it's a concept. Because if you go back in time everywhere, you've got men and women struggling forever. A minute, the, the. The differences between the sexes are pretty clearly outlined all, you know, historically. That, that any, anybody could have done it. The, the thing that I don't want to lose here is that I think that she was capable of doing it because her position was so, it was so non-political, non-feminist. She, she could, she, she didn't let political leanings shade her or direct her. Yes. Yeah. Yep. For that yep. Of a man that was, they weren't as able to provide for Yeah. Because I would say, it, it would be as, um, George Ellie didn't do it, couldn't do it. You can't find a woman writer at that time doing it. They're too caught in things. Um, if any woman could, could show a relationship between a man and a woman, and in a way that would bring out the disinterested, self-sacrificing nature of that love and do it again and again, it would be a remarkable feat today. I would say even harder because of the conditions we live in, um, particularly because they're so politicized. But she, she avoided that. I mean, there were, there were enough reasons for her to get involved and take a political stand on anything going on there. The English were involved with the French in wars. You had early signs of suffragettes already. You know, things are going on. Um, that she didn't let that keep her from dealing with these different kinds of marriages and celebrating this particular kind, this self in or 
self-denying, non-acquisitive kind of marriage that both um, Elizabeth and Darcy and, um, and Bing, Bingley and Jane have. To, concerns about that and she was still able to keep the focus and treat yeah yeah and you know that my own this is my own my own way of describing that would is that she was able to do that with a degree of charity so she could parody the mother she could late expose the mother's fault without without doing what sister does in why live at the post office she went. She didn't ridicule her mother. Right. She compared the offended. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yep. We we know we know the criticisms are there because we get her in tears. So we know what her thoughts are about her, but we never see her speaking that way to her mom, ever. By the way, just just because I asked Suzanne, she said, ask the same question about Eudora Welty. Um, How did, I, how did I put it? I could. Um, could Eudora Welty give a story showing that kind of love? Because in the two stories we have, why I live at the post office, and they both parody mercilessly everybody. Everybody is pan. I mean, they're just. I was thinking about your comment, Melody. You know, and I had you on my mind was I reading because I said you're going to go nuts with this because you've just. I mean, the characters just don't stop biting each other. It's, it's relentless. And if you thought it was bad in Jane Austen, what would you do with this? Um, and I thought, so answer, take the next question. So a man couldn't do this. Wait on the, um, could a man have written Eudora Welty's stories? And I'm going to say no for the same reason except with the, with the twist. Charles Dickens was capable of parody. I'm going to put this out flatly, see your response. Charles Dickens could have done that. He parodied men constantly. He might have had a passing parody of a woman. He would have never parodied a woman like this. Why? I don't want to hear this. <laughs> we're talking about real world changes taking place in what's going on right now in the reading we're doing. I'm not kidding. It's sort of blowing me away when I'm putting this thing because these... And ungentlemanly and unchivalry, and I mean, the, because those notions were still present in men, he would have never done that to a woman. Never. If there's a parody, it's a passing line, and he goes on. But there are parodies of men all the time. What does that say? Think about that. These women, in fact, this is the claim I told you in the note that I wrote you a week or so ago. I said, this is going to be a spiritual boot camp for women. Think about you guys. You're going to have to look at some really tough realities here because these women are monsters. They're witches. And I was thinking spiritual boot camp. But tonight on the way over I was thinking um, it's a time of women becoming aware of themselves. Not to idealize themselves. To see themselves as they are and, and to have the courage of showing that. The, the, men, the men are not doing it. Can you see Hemingway doing this with women characters? Or Charles Dickens, he parodied men all the time. He would have never done this. 
We've entered an age in which women are coming into themselves in ways that I'm not aligning with feminism and all this other stuff. I'm saying that if you look at Jane Austen forward that we've got a remarkable, you won't get it in George Eliot who's an extraordinary writer. Some people look at, um, what's that famous book of hers? As the classical realist book of all time. Um, I can't remember that time. Hmm? Um, George Eliot. I can't remember the... Huh? No. It's Anyway, Eliot, or George Eliot doesn't come close to it. Um, Jane Austen gets into the interior of a woman, shows women at, at various levels, and the point that I want to underscore here is she does it in Shakespeare because both of them go back to the Middle Ages, which had a high view of man, a noble view. Shakespeare would have never done this. He, he doesn't do that. If, the, if a man's going to be noble, he's going to be really good or tragic. So we, we're looking back to a past, and Jane, I'm saying Jane Austen is that watershed moment. With her, we're watching with the last gasp of a, of a certain view between the sexes that's amazing, that shows us what it once was. We're entering another time, another view, and a completely... Darwin? Freud? Marx? So, it's, it's really an amazing coincidence, happy sort of happy coincidence, you know, and we're doing these two stories, Why I Live at the Post Office and Petrified Man, where we're getting a, a view that Jane Austen could have never, Charles Dickens could have, you, it, it would have been impossible for these two stories to have been written then. And conversely, it would be, I'm claiming, it would be impossible for those five novels to be written in our age. And I hope you understand why. Even if somebody's going a, a writer, male or female, is going to show a sacrificial love, it will not be in a, a mannered world. Jade Austen lived in a mannered world. It looked back to an aristocratic past. That past is fading. Excuse me. That past is fading. It, 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 it left me with the questions I asked you. How do we look at Pemberley at the end? Where, how does she look at... And Mansfield Park, her view will change because she knows you can't go back to that world anymore. She's on the edge of a change whose implications she can't begin to see. That's 1815. 1915, we're in another world. C.S. Lewis is writing his works. Um, Faulkner's on the edge of his. Hemingway's on the edge of his. We're in a different world. Let me stop there. Is everybody clear? It's just so important to see that <laughs> it's, it's Alan Tate's. If you think you've read, this is Tate's, if you think you've read, let's say, Huckleberry Finn, and you've not read Homer, you don't understand Huckleberry Finn. You will not understand any work in isolation until you put that work in a tradition, because then its implications are really going to come out. Take a look at Pride and Prejudice in the context in which I'm presenting it today, and you'll say, holy cow. I see some things now that I would have never seen. Look at why I live at the post office or petrified man. In isolation, you'll partly miss it. Set it against Austin's five novels and it'll make your head roll. Is everybody following? We're in that changed a world and it's crucial to see it or we, or we won't see it well at all. 
Okay, second question. How do we look at Elizabeth in the second half of the novel? I love this question. She's bright, forward, fearless, independent, and then that change comes. That change. That how do you characterize Elizabeth as a woman? As a woman. Bright, forward, independent, fearless. The change comes. Characterize Elizabeth from all the descriptions we get of her interior in the second half of the novel. How would you describe her? I don't hear critics, teachers asking that question and I can't believe I didn't ask it. How do you see her? Say it again, Mary, she what? She didn't think really hard before she spoke. Yeah. yeah. in the second part, I think she did. Yeah, and I would say, um, I mean, I would differ just, I, I, I would question whether she's as bold. I mean, if you use that word as you did, because she is more reserved, she's more guarded, she's, I think you're right, she's more... In the first part, she believed, I think she believed that she was always right. She was the one who had reason and who sees things better than the West. Yeah, yes. And then she just realized that was not true. Yes. So she changed her, you know, her um, way of seeing herself, also that she could make mistakes. Yeah. Yes. She more humble. Yes. 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 Maybe I'm not as smart as I thought. Maybe I don't know the world as well as I thought. You know, maybe she grow. And I don't think that's just a thought. I think it's a sensibility in her heart. It's a way of feeling that makes her different. In and, I think, and I think one way in which I see it is that she never told anyone that she had changed her mind about Darcy. Not even to her sister that was her main confidant. You know, she kept all the, that in her. And it was not until the end when he proposed that everybody was like, what? Really? You have changed your way? She gives hints to Jane before that, but, but you're right, yeah. But Sorry? Yeah. In the third volume, chapter one, middle of the chapter, I, it's on my page two forty. But you don't have to go there. You can just. She said, every, "This is from again Elizabeth's point of view. How much of pleasure or pain was in the power to bestow? How much? Because she's looking at Pemberley and realizing things about Darcy that I think Melody, you're you're so right on. I think that's such a good perception." I'm going to read something um, that goes to that, but I, 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 I think you're, it's interesting because I think she's so capable of understanding men as men and women as women. And that's, I think that's one of her qualities. But here, how much of good or evil must be done by him? Every idea that had been brought forward by the housekeeper was favorable to his character. And as she stood before the canvas on which he was represented and fixed his eyes upon herself, she thought of his regard with a... And it, by the way, it's a work of art, <laughs> a painting, looking at her. And I hope everybody's seeing the double meaning there because she's creating a work of art in which we're being asked to look at each other and ourselves differently. And fixed his eyes upon herself, she thought of his regard with a deeper sentiment of gratitude than it had ever raised before. She remembered its warmth and softened its impropriety of expression. The sentiment of gratitude. Hold on to that. Page 253. 
This is a little bit later. This is in the second chapter in volume three. But above all, above respect and esteem, there was one motive within her of goodwill which could not be overlooked. It was gratitude. Gratitude, not merely for having once loved her, but for loving her still well enough to forgive all the petulance and acrimony of her manner in rejecting him and all the unjust accusations accompanying go down. Such a change in a man of so much pride excited not only an astonishment, but gratitude. Let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. Um, in which posture, which position, the opening that I, as I've described it, or the latter, is she more like Mary? We don't see her jumping out boldly or forwardly. I mean, to go to Mary's point. She's a quieter person. She's so receptive. She's so perceptive, but she brings a totally different sensibility to everything she sees. I mean, I don't want to use the word passive. I don't, I wish I could find another word. She's more receptive. Reflective, too. Yes. Feminine. More receptive, huh? Feminine. Thanks. <laughs> it's a serious question. You know, the Jane Austen, because we'll see that in her other heroines, and particularly in, in Mansfield Park, but um, wouldn't you all agree that she's a different woman? And she's feminine in both cases, but there's something nobler in her the self-sacrifice, her gratitude. Her, she's taken everything that she looked down on and is finding a reason for gratitude in it. The very same thing that she was critical of. All of her rebukes, her criticisms, now she's feeling embarrassed because she sees nothing but good there and feels gratitude. That's an amazing change. And I don't hear critics writing about it. God, they keep taking up the, talking about Elizabeth as these bright, witty, you know, independent. The woman in the second half of the novel is still Elizabeth. There's a deepened sensitivity, a, a receptiveness, I would say. It's not passive. There's a receptivity, a trust, a gratitude. Humble. Yeah, far more humble. Not so convinced of her own. Yeah. Okay, let me stop. And I'm, I'm going to just to try to pull those two questions together. I, to, I mean, this is just making Holly's point that um, there is a feminine sensibility to her that I think this, oh, the, here, the one, I'm, I'm not going to get it. Um, if I can take a second here. Um, 346. Page 346. Remember that, that I made the claim that Darcy showed, and I, I think, Melody, it goes to your point, but that it showed how capable, capable she was of seeing the differences between men and women. We go into the interior of, of, of Elizabeth, so we, we know through the feeling, the sensitivity of a woman. That's one of the great accomplishments here. But I think she clearly understood men, or she couldn't have presented Darcy in that letter, because men tend to be given to justice, honor, you know, outward things, 
that take the form of justice. So when he writes that letter, he says he has to acknowledge all those things, but he has to straighten her out on a number of things. But, and he presents his case, and he doesn't do it arrogantly. He's trying to be just. He's just trying to be just so that her feelings don't overwhelm everything. Um, because she's convinced of herself until she gets that letter. And when she gets that letter, she has to re-examine herself and look at see, and see that she wasn't always right. But um, if you look back at that letter, it, it seems to me that she's very clear on the differences between a man and a woman. We get it um, also in chapter 16 in volume 3. They walked on without knowing in what direction. There was too much to be thought and felt and said for attention to any other objects. She soon learned that they were indebted for their present good understanding to the efforts of his aunt, who did call in, a, in her return. That's so comic. Um, and there relate um, their journey. So he, he learns um, ab about what the Jane or that Elizabeth still may be interested because of the Berg when she wanted to do everything to defeat that. But another page later, he's, they're both coming to a point of learning to talk to each other. And Elizabeth wants to know when he fell in love with her and how things were and if he changed or things like that. And so they're coming to a point of what you can call a moment of communion where they are offering the best of themselves to each other. I cannot give you credit for any philosophy of the kind. Your retrospections must be so totally void of reproach that the contentment arising from this is not of philosophy, but what is much better, of ignorance. But with me it's not so. Painful recollections will intrude which cannot, which ought not to be repelled. I have this, and I think this is, shows her understanding of Darcy as a man, as a male. I've been a selfish being all my life, in practice, though not in principle. Men will always hold to principles. They're the most principled, well, usually. And they'll always take some external form. And that means they're always going to be right, because they're standing on a principle. He's saying, I've been a selfish being all my life, in practice, though not in principle. As a child, I was taught what was right, but not taught to correct my temper. I was given good principles, but left to follow them in pride and conceit. Unfortunately, an only son, for many years an only child, I was spoiled by my parents, who, um, who though good themselves, my father particularly, all that was benevolent and amiable, allowed, encouraged, almost taught me to be selfish and overbearing, to care for none but my own family circle. He's very principled, but he's, he's, that's in the mind. He's never been taught to make his will more amenable. So just along these lines, that I, I'm, I'm so amazed at how, how faithful she is to both men and women, to see the differences between them, and to have the, the capacity, the courage, the talent, whatever you want to call it, to go, to go into the interior of women the way she does, to open up this life and show the goodness that we're women are capable. Let me stop. I want to take on these two short stories as quickly as I can. Any comments about Pride and Prejudice before we put it away? Amazing writer. Amazing writer. And she makes clear what we left behind. <laughs> and as readers of good literature, we have been asked not to leave behind. One of the first things that I said to you guys when we met is that one of the things that 
will unfold here that you won't appreciate until we get going is that Catholics by their faith should have a sense of tradition that Protestants don't have. Protestants think once you've accepted, you're, you know, you're saved. And, but we hold on to a, um, a tradition and it was one of the defining qualities of Vatican II. There were groups that wanted to go back to um, the Bible, purely scripture. And at the cost of the patristic tradition of St. Augustine and Thomas and all the rest, and other factions that said we can't. And there was a big faction that was trying to give a greater place to Mary. There were real struggles going on in Vatican II. And the result of it was the church, <laughs> the church has to move into the modern world and make radical changes. And out of that came the changes in the Tridentine Mass that outraged lots of people and Novus Ordo, the new Mass. It was the church's way of trying to get us in to face the horrible realities of our world. So the church right now has a special call. And one of my claims, I want to make it here, I don't think we can make it well if we don't hold on to this tradition. If we don't see that there's more at stake and keep it alive in the work we do. So, okay. No comments or on I'm going to go through these quickly. Um, you know the story of why Live at the Post Office. It's told from the point of view of Sister, and what she does is give us a, <laughs> a, a, a detailed account of punch by punch, battle. It was round by round between her and her sister and her mom and her um, grandfather and her uncle. Um, it starts, um, pardon my efforts at imitation here, please, but I was getting along fine with Mama, Papa, Daddy, and Uncle Rhonda until my sister Stella Rhonda, just separated from her husband, came back home again. Mr. Whitaker, of course I went with Mr. Whitaker first when he first appeared here in China Grove taking pose yourself photos and Stella Rondo broke us up. Told him I was one-sided, bigger on one side than the other, which is a deliberate, calculated falsehood. I am the same. Stella Rondo is exactly 12 months to the day younger than I am, and for that reason, she's spoiled. <laughs> um, you know that they go on and on. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing because I'm trusting you. She was made postmistress, so she has a job at the post office. Her sister calls her upstairs. It takes place on the 4th of July, okay, on Independence Day, and she lives at the post, or she's going to move into the post office. And, and in my last letter to you, I pointedly said, what's the meaning of all that? Her sister is upstairs, and she calls sister upstairs to, to look at Uncle Rondo, who's running around in a kimono dress, looking stupid, and, and sister's making, or, Stella Rondo is making fun of her and, and sister joins in. Um, on page three, just to try to move this forward quickly, Papa Daddy woke up with this horrible yell right there without moving an inch. He tried to turn Uncle Rondo against me. I heard every word he said. Oh, he told Uncle Rondo I didn't learn to read till I was eight years old and he didn't see how in the world I ever got to mail put at the P.O., much less read it all. And he said if Uncle Rondo could only fathom the length he'd gone to to get me that job. And he said, on the other hand, he thought Stella Rondo 
had a brilliant mind and deserved credit for getting out of town. He goes on and on and on. Um, um, <laughs> Stella mentions the comments about Uncle Rondo in his gown, and which makes him mad at sister. Um, on the top of page four, well, he looks as good as he can, I says, as good as anybody in reason could. I stood up for Uncle Rondo. Please remember, she's addressing us. I hope you caught that several times. It's as if she's speaking to us. And it's important to, to see that. And I said to Stella Rondo, I think I would do well not to criticize so freely if I were you and came home with a two-year-old child I'd never said a word about and no explanation whatever about my separation. It goes on. Um, Oh, where can I go? Let's see. She gets to that point where she describes her uncle coming and throwing firecrackers in her room, and that's the last straw. She says, um, after that happens, um, she made up her mind. Um, down on page six, and I'll tell you, it didn't take me any longer than a minute to make up my mind what to do. There I was with the whole entire house on Stella Rondo's side and turned against me, if I have anything at all, I have pride. <coughs> so I just decided I'd go straight down to the P.O. There's plenty of room there in the back, I says to myself. What she does at that moment is begin collecting all these things, some of which they're going to miss, the radio, you know, fan, and things like that. As she's moving outside, she, um, she's, somebody happens to be going by with a wagon, and I can't remember, I think they take nine trips to fill it all and I'm sorry I'm cutting this short because I want to get to why I live at the post office too. So she moves all this stuff in, took her nine trips in, um, in her express wagon. Uncle Rondo came out on the porch and threw her in. And remember just before this the her family is saying we're never going to go to the post office and she's saying she's I don't I'm trying to avoid using words to give away my so she responds by saying um what are they going to do when if his sister wants to write Mr. Whitaker again or if they have to pick up their mail and they're all saying that there's no way they're ever going to go even though mail you know can pile up there as far as they're concerned. So the family's divided, they're at odds with each other, everybody in the town, is, it's got to be a really small place, knows it. And it ends with her saying, and that's the last I laid on my family. When well, my family laid eyes on me for five solid days and nights. Stella Rondo may be telling the most horrible tales in the world about Mr. Whitaker, but I haven't heard them. As I tell everybody, I draw my own conclusions. But oh, I like it here. It's ideal, as I've been saying. You see, I've got everything catered the way I like it. Hear the radio? All the war news? I mean, I'm trying not to put in editorial comments and just, of course there's not much mail. My family are naturally the main people in China Grove and if they prefer to vanish from the face of the earth for all the mail they get or the mail they write, well I'm not going to open my mouth. Some of the folks here in town are talk, taking up for me and some turned against me. I know which is which. There are always people who quit buying stamps just to get the right side of Papa Daddy. But here I am and here I stay. I want the world to know I'm happy. And Estelle Aranda should come to me this minute on bended knees and attempt to explain the incidents of her life with Mr. Whitaker. I simply put my fingers in both my ears and refuse to listen. Okay. What's the humor here and why is the point of view so important? 
And what does it what does it reveal? What does the story reveal to us about sister's character? About the younger sister. Wait, sorry, Mike. Sorry. Well, she's put a wall between herself and the rest of the family, and and so it's appropriate that she would her perspective would be the only one given in the story, uh, and. Uh, she, for better or worse, she's gotten her independence. Yes. Is there an irony to that? Mm-hmm. She's really not independent. <laughs> she's very dependent on her family for the mail, for business there, post office, because she and and in the beginning she said she got along fine with them until Stella Rondo. So the problem is between. Her and her, her younger sister. They evidently don't like each other. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe the rest of the family pitted them against each other. I see a lot of that. Yeah. And it was Papa Daddy that got her the job at the post office in the first place. Yes. Yeah. And then also the family sort of dependent on her at the same time because she takes all that stuff with her. She goes the sewing machine, the radio things that the family has, which she says, I bought the money for them, I actually bought this stuff myself, yeah. so technically it's mine. Uh, so they're both dependent on each other, and the day they sort of become independent of each other is independent state. It doesn't necessarily feel very liberating, it just feels... <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> and she's righteously indignant, but in a way she's the butt of the joke. It's very important that we only get one side of the story. Yeah. Can flesh that out, can you, Chuck? What what's the value of a first person limited? What's the irony of it here? Well, first of all, we uh, if you read deeply, you should have a lot of skepticism about what she's saying based on how she behaves. I mean, the, the her her own irrationality and his immaturity in a way, her peak, that suggests that everything she's telling us might not be that reliable. <laughs> yeah, I I want to be careful here. Somebody I knew and loved dearly, who was a young teenager about this age, read it, and her comment was, I really identify with her. <laughs> I had to have a talk with her, and, and, and I still have a talk, because I want to ask her to, you know, to sit, why I live at the post office, Nick, to Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, and see what she says about women's character. What's the, so, does everybody, is everybody clear in the irony of Independence Day? Is everybody clear in the irony of the post office? Why I live at the post office? What's the irony of that? Not much communication. Is everybody, the post office is supposed to facilitate communication, right? It's an agent for... Um, <laughs> does everybody see the irony there? We're getting everything from one point of view, and then let me go to the cut to the chaser. What is the prime motivator, the emotion motivating sister in everything she does. Jealousy. Jealousy. Spite. Spite. Isn't it spite? I mean, jealousy some, but it, I don't think there's a line she utters that isn't said in spite. See, either put somebody down or make her look like a victim or not let somebody else have a way. Everything she does is to put spite, I mean, to... No, I'm sure. Isn't isn't the sense that that there's something wrong with everybody in that family? If what she's saying is true, sorry, see. It seems like a comedy, almost like a it is. like a farce, like yeah. so ridiculous, yeah, 
for dysfunctional. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. Yes. I want to. I want to get Melody. What's your? Because I was. What's your response to this story? Can't hear you. I don't know if our sound's not on or. Mike. You were right. Oh, go ahead. I was incredibly irritated. But it's funny. It's funny that she knows. The sister knows, so she's not going to ask any questions because she already knows the answer. And it irritated at me at first, like uh, uh, Grandpa, Papa. Papa Daddy. Yeah. Um, sister didn't even really start that, and he automatically got mad at her. I mean, like, he didn't give her a chance, and Mama was the same way, just turned on her right away. Yeah. And she had my sympathy at first, and then you <laughs> her character, and you're like, well, that's because she's a spiteful know-it-all who doesn't want anybody else to tell her what she already knows. So they all deserve each other. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to call this to pick up what something said a minute ago. I, I would put this in the category of um, infernal comedy. If you go back to Dante, remember, because we talk, we, 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 Dante gave us the literary landscape for everything. And remember, in a Christian, that he, 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 he couldn't call hell a tragedy. It was a comedy. Because remember, in the ancient world, death was the end of things. And the, the nobility of a person marked um, was a sign of the goodness that man could achieve in this light, but it was ironic that so often when men achieved a, a, a noble status, their pride got in the way. And it, and it gave them a tragic quality. So in the ancient world, tragedy real because um, you can't see although you know death is the end of things. In a Christian world, that's not true. Christ answered everything, so he took on all men's sins. So the end is not unknown anymore. We know that death isn't the end of things, it's the beginning of something else. So a whole worldview changes. And Dante could not call in, um, what happens in hell tragic. That view changes. Because the men in hell, after um, a Christian worldview, are not there because of their nobility, because they don't see. They have no reason for not knowing anymore because Christ unveiled everything. We know. They're there because they're stupid. <laughs> really. And, and in that sense, it's not tragic. No, nobody has a nobility in Dante's hell. Even though we've got noble figures. They're there because they're stupid in their pride, in, in what they choose when they've made clear what the options are. So in Dante's scheme, if we can use that to, to characterize all works of literature, you could, you could see this as a form of um, infernal comedy. I really believe what we're seeing is a form of hell. And I know that's going to sound harsh. It's comically treated, but it's hellish. I mean, they're all, all of them are spiteful, blind, willful. There's no love that I can see. Everything is an occasion for putting somebody else down. What motivates all of them is spite. And the, the greatest degree of spite is in sister. She's, she's doing what her mom described when she said, cutting off her nose to spite her face. She's going to take everything with her and show to show them. She, so she's cutting off her nose to spite her face. She's going to take everything with her so she can have her way. And, and 
convince herself that she's right. So she's going to live in this isolated self-righteousness that is hellish. It's comic, it's funny, it's also a little bit frightening, I think. But good to see you again. Hi, By the way, enjoyed your bread. Thanks. Aww. Um, Austin, there are so many different parties and dinners and meetings and everything. Right. It's all about community there. That's a very big aspect versus nowadays it's the isolated individual. Yep, yep. And that's very much what happens in the story as she goes from having a broken community, but it's still a community, right. to just being very isolated. Yes. Yeah, perfect, yes. Isolated, I mean, the, the key description of the modern world in um, Freud and Darwin is um, isolated autonomous individual, isolated autonomous individual. That is the, the the mark of modern man. That's why we. That's why I called um, um, Austin a watershed moment. That from that point forward, we're in a different, very very different world. So, okay, to try to to try to sum this up. Any other comments about why I live near? Yeah. Oh, they even comment. They they say she sister wants to make it clear, or or Stella I can't remember wants to make it clear that they weren't first cousins who married it because sister asked if if the baby were normal. God, the spite in that family. God. I kind of think there was some close intermarriage. Yeah, I don't know. Any comments about the baby? The baby is described as being two years old and three years old, and, and sister makes a lot of it when, when sister comes home. Any thoughts about all the comments about the baby and its age and the surprise about it? There's something going on there. That's what they, that's what they let you think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I have the same question, and I wondered if she didn't leave to spare herself the shame. Because it would have been so outrageous in that very proper community. Oh, God. <laughs> it's not a problem. It was adopted. <laughs> yeah, right. By the way, I, I'm going to, because I, I, I probably won't get, this tale is a bitter, it's an infernal comedy. It's, uh, to me, it's, I was laughing at you, Melody, because I thought, God, if you didn't like Pride and Prejudice, how are you going to get through this? Because I, I actually found, my, I haven't read this in 20 years like most of these things. And I, I, I found myself, I loved this story at one time. I couldn't read it. It was just so hard for me. The, the spite never stopped. It was so relentless. Um, I, here, I, I'm going to ask this question now, even though I want to I cover Petrified Man before we leave. What's the value of reading these things for our faith? Mary, where'd you go? I want you on this question. I'm sorry, Alexis. Alexis got sick and Connie's not. I really, I know, I know. What's the, is there any value is to, in these stories to our faith? Serious question. Yes, because it shows you what's on the other side of the abyss. How <laughs> <laughs> is our faith with just not believing in anything in yourself? Yeah, yeah. I think also we 
you talk about perspective and having a this is very much like very first person limited perspective. That idea of almost like I am God and therefore I know what is happening uh, versus having a very shared perspective of we are not God. We don't know what's happening, but he does. So therefore we can trust his word. We can trust his sacred scripture, the yeah. tradition. We can trust yeah. the Holy Spirit guiding us. Um, and that's a big difference because we have a shared perspective as Catholics and as Christians. Um, Versus having very isolated perspectives, all of And always being right in your. Anybody, anybody else? There isn't anymore in the modern world. It's a. It's nominal. It's it's just a name. Let me offer this because I. Um, this is Suzanne's comment because we talked about. It's a cautionary tale. Both of them. There. If if I if I were a woman reading this and looked at myself and saw the, and I'm assuming, I hope, most women will look at themselves and say, these are things. By the way, and I didn't, I didn't, I made the shift too quickly. I wanted to go back into the classical past. Remember in the class, so we're not in, back then, we're not in a modern scientific world, Freudian, Darwinian, or Marxist. In the classical view, some of the, some of the archetypes of women were Medusa. She turned men into stone, i.e. petrified men. She, I'm really serious about this. Um, she turned men into stone. Um, the Furies watched the, I mean, some of the hysterical passions in the Hollywood celebrities a couple of years ago were horrifying to watch. If any of you saw some of the, they were ready to burn down the, the White House. And um, The Furies, the, um, the um, not the Humanities, but the, the Furies. Remember in the Oristia? The dark thonic forces, feminine. Um, those are some of the original archetypes in a mythic world. In a scientific world, those things don't exist anymore. Um, but there's something going on. Remember in the fall, Eve was the one who was tricked. There's some susceptibility in the feminine fall. Adam was not. He defied God. I mean, Eve gave him the apple and he took it. She was tricked, which says, and then the, the typical reading is Milton, and Milton's, you know, I mean, people tend to read it that way. I, I've, I've got trouble with that, but um, Satan came and said, I, I will open your eyes and you'll be as a god, and you can read that in other ways than pride, because my belief is pride didn't exist until after the fall, so I have troubles with that reading, but it, at least we can say a higher intellectual order, an angel, Angels are far superior, far more cunning than humans. Tricked her. Adam was not tricked. He took that from different motives. What happens to woman after the fall? If, if, man and, if men and women turn their love to God and find a completeness in everything, what happens when that love turns back to themselves? We're in a section of our readings where we're just happening to read um, these were, it, it really is. It's interesting that women tend to, my, my description earlier about um, woman woman becomes aware of herself in all, the, these are women writing about women, not men. I don't think men could do this. So they're showing us aspects of the feminine that are certainly not going to put people who live in terms of respectability comfortable. Women are not going to be comfortable looking at these things. What is there to learn? 
And as a cautionary tale, it seems to me one of the benefits of reading this is if it did anything to you at all, if you found any of this stuff in you, you'd run to Mary <laughs> as fast as you could. These are cautionary tales saying, in Chuck's words, get on the other side of that abyss, you know, as a woman. So um, these aren't defending the church. They're not apologetics in that sense. But these women are exposing dark sides of themselves. And we're left to ask, you know, what do we do um, with them? Petrified man. Um, I'm going to quickly go through this again and, and just leave you with some, or try to end with some questions. You know that it takes place in a beauty parlor. Oh, God. Oh, God. It takes place in a beauty parlor. Um, the two women, um, uh, it's um, Leota and Mrs. Fletcher. Reach in my purse and get me a cigarette without no powder in it, if you can. Mrs. Fletcher, honey, said Leota to her 10 o'clock shampoo and set customer. I don't like no perfumes. Now, I'm going to just skip some lines to go to some images here. Down a few paragraphs. Who's Mrs. Pike? asked Mrs. Fletcher because the, she said that Mrs. Pike got her the peanuts and they've been in there for a while. Settling back, hidden in this den of curling fluid and henna packs separated by a lavender swing door from other customers who were being gratified in other booths, she could give her curiosity its freedom. Go down. Mrs. Pike is this lady from New Orleans, said Leota, puffing and pressing into Mrs. Fletcher's scalp with strong red nailed fingers. A friend, not a customer. You see, like maybe I told you last time, me and Fred and Sal and Joe all had a, a fuss, so Sal and Joe up and moved out, so we didn't do a thing but rent out their room. So we rented to the Mrs. Pike and Mr. Pike. She flicked an ash into the basket of dirty towels. Um, go down a few lines. Honey, cute ain't the word for what she's talking about, Mrs. Pike. Mrs. Pike is attra attractive. She has her good time. She's got a sharp eye out, Mrs. Pike has. She dashed the comb through the air and paused dramatically as a cloud of Mrs. Fletcher's hennied hair floated out of the lavatory like a small storm cloud. So there's an association with a storm in the, and it's likened to a den. Um, so I'm just going to skip here. You know I mean, that, that Leota says something about um, Mrs. Fletcher looking like she's pregnant. And Mrs. Fletcher is horrified that anybody could say such a thing. And we, she says originally that it um, was Thelma, but it turns out that it was Mrs. Um, Pike who saw her coming out of a drugstore and realized that she was pregnant. She is embarrassed to admit that she's pregnant. Why? Don't answer it yet. It's just a question. How are we to look at these women in terms of the way they look at pregnancies or having a child? Um... <clears throat> At the top of three, um, you know that the little boy comes in and it, it irritates uh, Mrs. Fletcher. And Leota's keeping him as a favor to Mrs. Pike. Well, said Leota moodily, well, I'm almost tempted not to have this one, said Mrs. Fletcher. That Mrs. Hutchison just looks straight through you when, you see you when she sees you on the street and then spits at you behind your back. Mrs. Fletcher would beat you on the head if you didn't have it now, said Leota reasonably. That is, giving up the child. After going this far, Mrs. Fletcher sat up straight. Mr. Fletcher can't do a thing with me. He can't? Leota winked at herself in the mirror. Because both of them make a point that husbands are not going to 
have any word in their relationships. They go on about um, uh, Mrs. Pike, and it leads Leota to tell her about the experience they had at the circus earlier. And they describe these pygmies um, in a jar, and then they get to this description of a of a this this twins in a jar. yeah sorry twins in a jar, and this pygmy who who eats and gets turned into stone as he does in the page four. Of course not, protested Leota. Neither is me and Fred. Not that we know of. Well, honey, what Mrs. Pike liked was the pygmies. They got these pygmies down there too, and Mrs. Pike was just wild about them. You know, the teeniest men in the universe? Well, honey, they can rest back on their little hunkers and roll around, and you can hardly tell if they're sitting or standing. That'll give you some idea. They're about 42 years old. Just suppose it was your husband. Well, Mrs. Fletcher is five foot nine and one half, said Mrs. Fletcher quickly. Huh? Fred's five foot ten. She had to be better. <laughs> Um, said Leota, but I tell him he's still a shrimp, a kind of, I'm so tall. She made a deep wave over Miss Fletcher's other temple with a comb. Well, these pygmies are kind of dark brown. They go on about these pygmies and the fact that the food that they eat um, goes out to their limbs and they turn into stone. Um, they talk about their husbands going off and fishing. Um, they don't work. They sit around all day. Um, Right. Um, at the end of the first section, um, I met Mr. Fletcher, or rather he met me in a rental library, said Mrs. Fletcher with dignity as she watched the net come down over her head. Honey, me and Fred, we met in a rumble seat eight months ago, and we was practically what you might call the way to the altar inside a half hour, said Leota in a guttural voice, and, a, and, a, and bit a bobby pin open. Of course it don't last, Mrs. Pike says, nothing like that ever lasts. Mr. Fletcher and myself are as much in love as the day we married. <laughs> Do you believe that? Said Mrs. Fletcher belligerently as Leota. They have to, it's like sister, they have to do one up no matter what they do. Mrs. Pike says it don't last, repeated Leota in a louder voice. Now go get under the dryer. You can turn yourself on, can't you? I'll be back to comb you out. During lunch, I promise to give Mrs. Pike a facial. You know free, her being in the business, so to speak. She's a beautician too. A week goes by, and I didn't have this printed out, but online I, I copied um, a poster of the kind of, um, what do you call the, the large posters? What do you, the, in, you call it in the church that, you know, in a, outside of a movie theater advertising or the magazines on a table. Um, I put one in there, you can go look it up, to give you a picture because they keep referring to these magazines. A week later, Mrs. Fletcher shows up again. Mrs. Fletcher sank into Leota's chair after first removing a drugstore rental book called Life is Like That from the seat. Um, what's the name for it? I can't. Um, but there's a genre of books like that, and clearly the women read them. Um, it's like women staying home and watching um, soaps. Yeah. Um, she then tells her what happened with the um, fortune teller. The fortune teller's name, interestingly, is Evangeline. You know what that means? Bringer of good news. Yeah, yeah. It's an Evangeline, a bringer of good news. Um, and 
Leota keeps wanting to go back because she's fascinated with what this woman says. And the woman tells Mrs. Fike she's going to come into a fortune. <laughs> and she goes on to say that um, they were um, looking in one of these magazines. I can't, I can't remember the name of the generic name. but Oh, here. It's in the, on page 8 in the middle. Wait, so come night for last, Fred and Mrs. Pike, who Fred just took up with, was back from, from they said they was fishing, being as neither one of them has got a job to his name, and we was all sitting around in their room. So Mrs. Pike was sitting there reading an, an old startling G-Man tales that was mine, mind you. Um, so imagine these, I don't know what to call them, conventional stories about adventure and excitement, and, and they're conventionally sentimental and foolish. Um, mind you, I bought it myself and all of a sudden she jumps into the air. You'd have thought she'd set on a spider and says, Canfield, ain't that silly? That's Mr. Pike, Canfield, my God Almighty. She says, honey, she says, we're rich and you wouldn't have to work. Not that he turned one hand anyway. Well, me and Fred rushes over to her and Mrs. Pike too and there she sits pointing her finger at a photo in my copy of Startling G-Man. See that man, yells Mrs. Pike, remember him, Canfield? She reminds him that that, that was the man that they lived next door to and he was the petrified man in the circus. But they discover in this magazine that he's wanted for raping four or five women in California. So um, they're shocked. Uh, Mrs. Fletcher wants to get, or I mean, Mrs. Pike wants to get money right away. Her husband doesn't want to have anything to do. She threatens to beat him up and they go get the money. Um, so they get the money. They end up with all this money. And Leota is fit to be tied because Mrs. Pike got it instead of her. <laughs> it's like sister again. Um, Did it under his real name, Mr. Petrie. Four women in California, all in the month of August. So Mrs. Pike gives five, gets $500 and my magazine and right next door to my beauty parlor. I cried all night, but Fred said it wasn't a bit of use to go to sleep because the whole thing was just sort of coincidence. He doesn't care. But she gets the money. Go down. Four women. I guess those women didn't have the faintest notion at the time they'd be worth 125 bucks a piece someday to Mrs. Pike. And, and she says she even served breakfast to the guy when they were living either in the same apartment or next to each other. And then they suddenly hear Billy Boy making noise going through her purse. And Leota grabs him and puts him over her knee and the story ends. I caught him, I caught him, giggled Mrs. Fletcher. I hold him on my lap. You bad, bad boy, you. I guess I better learn how to spank little old bad boy, she said. Leota's seven o'clock customer pushed open the swing door upon Leota, paddling him hardly with the brush while he gave angry but belittling screams which penetrated beyond the booth and filled the whole curious beauty parlor. From everywhere, ladies began to gather around to watch the paddling. Billy Boy kicked both Leota and Mrs. Fletcher as hard as he could, but Mrs. Fletcher with her new fixed smile. There, my little man, gasped Leota, you won't be able to sit down for a week if I knew what I was doing. Billy Boy stomped through the group of wild-haired ladies and went out the door, but flung back the words, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? Okay, let's, um, what's the irony of the setting? It's a beauty parlor. Let's fletch this out because it seems to me it's pretty deep. What's the irony or some of the ironies? It's 
very ugly scene in that beautiful part. <laughs> You're getting uh, beautiful from the outside, but inside yeah. it's just a disaster. Yeah. These women are all preoccupied with their looks. Um, take the, go, go deeper. Where do, where do the ironies go? How far? Wait, if it has to do with beauty, are you on beauty here? Yes. Okay. That's not usually what I would describe as like beautiful is wild hair. Yeah. Usually you would think like beautiful hair or well done hair, but it's like wild haired ladies that really stuck out to me. Well, they're all coming out, remember, to hear this noise, so they're probably in some. Yeah, they're in the middle of the process. Yeah, right. What are some of the other ironies about the ironies dealing with beauty? It's clear, uh, Mrs. Fletcher and uh, Mrs. Montjoy both uh, seem to think that pregnancy is a mark on their beauty. Right, and, right. Uh, so much so that Mrs. Montjoy comes uh, to the beauty parlor in God. the midst of her labor yes. pains right. and gets a set and curl right. uh, so that she can go to the maternity hospital looking yeah. And her husband is sitting out in the in the car. Yeah. 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 <laughs> rather than getting her. <laughs> the anti-human quality to that beauty is yeah. I mean you can't miss it. They they look down on pregnancy because it takes away from their appearances. They care that much about it. So the whole ability of women to give life is buried under this dark concern for for outward appearances. It's pretty grim. Pretty grim. What other ironies? The beauty shop. The uh, little boy, he seems to be interested in beauty. He was at the hat shop putting on hats, and now they're talking about how he likes to be in the beauty salon, too. Mm -hmm. So a distorted view of a, of a male's view of beauty. Yeah. Most boys would not want to do that. Yeah. He'd be afraid to do that. Well, you get a clue to that, too, maybe, to how the other men in the story why they are the way they are. Go ahead. Well, this little boy is not being brought up in any way that's going to conduce to a healthy manhood, is it? Or even a proper respect for women. Yeah. I mean, just, yeah. Um, what about Petri, Mr. Petri? Let's get to Petrified. Why is it called Petrified Man? <laughs> what? Did you hear Jane Melanie? Oh, sorry, what? Melanie has a comment. Thank Melody, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I and I don't know if somebody mentions it, but the irony of them gossiping in the beauty parlor, and this is true with me too, is sometimes you feel when you're segmented between the mirrors that nobody else can hear. It's just you and the hairdresser. When in reality, people are speaking loudly over the blow dryers. So it's a very open space, so they're gossiping, acting like it's just the two of them when a lot of people can hear. Yeah, so yeah, everything's good. getting out, yeah. What about, go ahead, go ahead Mary. Uh, the petrified man. <laughs> yes. Okay, if he was petrified and turning to stone, how he raped four women, but it also made me think that to be able to rape women, your feelings would have to be Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I, there has to be something wrong there. Yeah, yes. My own sense is that, I mean, if we look at the boy and what they're doing, because they're getting back at the boy. They're so angry. She's so angry at losing the money 
that she takes it out on him and she just spanks him unmercifully. But it's just a question in my mind. I think the irony, the great irony of the story is that it's things like this that women do that petrify. The men aren't there. They're not around. And I, I don't think the women are an excuse. But in the way that, the way that um, Welty presents them makes it clear that women can do things that petrify men, that just, you know, that make them, keep them from doing anything. So the image of Petri is, a, is an image of the effect of what women can do when we're seeing them do this stuff. The question that I've got at the end is if we're not seeing the little boy on his way to raping women and, you know, I mean, it's, we don't know, it's, and you can't say, but the women are so ghastly, just, I mean, like sister that, so when you look at these two stories and, and think that this is a time when women are becoming, and by the way, remember what I said before, Eudora Welty's, these are two of her most anthologized, two of her most popular because they're short, but she's done other stories that are tender, um, they don't have this um, note of, of infernal comedy, what I'm calling infernal comedy, this, this element of parody. Wait, wait, Chuck. Let me. The the robbers, bar, the robbers baron, and the um, the optimist daughter. Short novels are so different. So don't let this narrow your view of Eudora Welty. She's a much greater writer. But here, she's. Um, these are her most popular short stories, and they're amazing for this view of something dark in women, but Chuck, go ahead. Help me with the context a little bit. I guess this was written in the early 40s, these are the war years then. So does the fact that all the men who are worth anything gone contribute to this environment? I don't think so. It's like Jane Austen. Her focus is so on the, the world at large. Like it's Independence Day. It, it has no significance in itself. It, it's, it's an, it adds to the irony of that story because <laughs> Sister's got her independence, in, and that's the last thing you can say she has at this point in the, you know. You think about it, why would these two stories, which are just horrible, be the most popular? It's like clickbait or something. It's like what? Clickbait. We look at something. Some <laughs> well, what did you say? The what? Like what? Clickbait. clickbait. When you're clicking on things on the news just because they... Oh, it's just automatic, or what? They catch your interest because they're just so horrible. You're so it's like oh, oh, oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, one go, no one goes looking for a train wreck, but you don't turn your eyes away. Yeah. No, and that's true. I mean, that, St. Augustine said that ages ago, that he went to the Colosseum when gladiators were killing, and he, he said he was so aware that he couldn't take his eyes off the gore. And we, we know, I mean, we're driving on the freeway and watch an accident, and it's, we, we know we've got to get our eyes back on the road, but something about horror, I think it touches an archetypal note of something primeval and I mean, really in the depths of our soul. We crucified God. We turned away from God. And one of the things I, I really wanted to underscore earlier is what I said, we're going to, before we started, we're going to read stories of these grotesque aspects to women. And if anybody has a hard time looking at them, we've seen men, Iago is one of the most horrible images in literature we'll ever get to. What he did was vicious and mean. Um, Ahab does dark things with Fadala. But these are peculiar to women, and to try to put it in perspective, I said, don't forget that our God had to be crucified on a cross 
to atone for our sins. So that if we don't have a proper sense of the depths of our sins, all we have to do is look at that crucifixion to realize what in proportion it took to answer them. Human, we, as human beings, I mean, we read about it all. You know, if you, you don't have to go outside of America, but everything you read about the Hamas, you know, the, 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 the mutilations, the rapes, and God, the horrible things that are going on in that war. But the same thing, the abortion, the same sorts of things are going on in America, and we wear suits and ties, and we think we're okay. You know, T.S. Eliot called us trousered apes, or C.S. Lewis, sorry, called us trousered apes, that there is a beast underneath us. It's why I used the word a while ago, cautionary tales. If, if you read these and, and have the courage to look at them, it seems to me you run to Mary. And if you're a man aware of your sins, you run to Mary and Christ. Um, because these women are showing us the horrors that women are capable of. Petrified men. I have a question though. Um, you know, she, um, Leota, you know, she's, she's, she's the one who's working. You know, the, the husband is all day at home. Right. Know? So they're, you know, they are, they, they feel powerful because, because of that? Because I was thinking this was more the type of the depression that maybe wasn't easy to find jobs. I, I'm not sure when this was written, but does she feel that, you know, she makes sure that we understand that she feels better because she's working. Because, yeah, yeah. Know, I think that certain, the, the men are, um, there's, I mean, nothing's made of them, but they're so implicated in what goes on by doing nothing. You know, I mean, the women seem to be aware of the need for men to put down their feet, but they make a point of saying if they're men setting, they're not going to hear. It's like sisters. The, the ironies just don't stop. They're, I mean, I, 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 you know, keep in mind what I said. In Jane Austen, we still had a view of the nobility of man and of woman. In Elizabeth, we, we have an image of the very best of her, even of woman. And that's why I wanted to make that contrast between Elizabeth at the beginning and the woman she changes into. She's far more receptive, quieter, humble um, at the end. Um, that we have a view of the nobility of the human person still in Jane Austen. Darcy's a good man, whatever his failings, like Elizabeth, but they're both good people. In these two pictures, we, we have, or sorry, these two stories, we have nothing noble. You have to go to other stories of Eudora Welty, and they're there. But in these stories, you're getting a sort of comic, an infernal comedy picture of um, people. And, and remember what I said, you'll never find anything like this written during Jane Austen's time. You won't find it. And vice versa, you won't find anything like Jane Austen's novels, A World of Manners, written in our age in America. Everybody looks at manners in our world as something to defy, because manners are oppressive, they're conformist. You become more American by being outrageous, by non-conforming. So we're in a world almost diametrically opposite the world of Jane Austen. So we've entered a new world. Next week we read Faulkner and um, I want to do, it's a very, very short story. Um, it's a story that leads to his other works, so it's very, it's very brief and not much to say about But Flowering Judas by um, Catherine Ann Porter is about a woman 
who's involved in South America. She's left America. She's involved in the revolt, all the revolts that took place at the you know, beginning of the last century. Um, it's a powerful, powerful story. Powerful story. Powerful story. It doesn't have the parodic, the parody aspect, so <laughs> you'll get some relief from that melody. Um, but it's a wonderful story. Catherine, Catherine and Porter, Flowering Judas, and Faulkner's That Evening Sun. I also included uh, E.B. White's Once More to the Lake. I'm only going to mention that. It, it, to me, it's just a very touching story. It's a very tender story of a, of a son recalling growing up with his father and carrying on the same traditions as he... Um, it's just a good touching story. But our focus will be on, on Faulkner and mostly Catherine Ann Porter. I think Flowering Judas is an amazing, and it's a, from, by, um, she's a Catholic writing it. Um, Is a reference to Say? Any last comments or questions about how different our world is and the challenge we, we face in our faith? Truly, what, we, what we're being asked to face in this world? <laughs> you know, when, when Suzanne and I were younger, we lived in California, and Stanford was our, you know, next door. Eudora Welty made a public appearance there, and she read a story, and the story that she read was Why I Live at the Post Office. When everybody in the crowd, it was an overflowing crowd in a big auditorium because she was such a popular writer, when they heard it was Why I Live at the Post Office, they roared. I mean, they wanted to hear it because people identify her with, you know, these. But good readers will read, you know, the Optimist Daughter and the Robber's Bridegroom. I can't remember the names. But Worn Path is a short story that's a very tender story. It's, it's totally different from these. Um, but there may be some truth to what you're saying, Mary. They are readable and they're funny, but... Um, I found it hard. I, I read these and didn't think a thing about it 20 years ago. I read them this last week and I had trouble getting through them. The spiders. God. Suzanne read them and I, this before I sat down to read them, I said, so what did you think? She said, I couldn't stand the spite. And I mean, it just got so bad. Just, I think we're getting soft, Suzanne and I. <laughs>